Open your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. First Corinthians 16. One Sunday there was a little girl holding her dad's hand coming into the church and she wore this pretty purple dress and had a huge smile on her face. And as they came to the doors to enter into the building, The greeter saw her smile and said, what are you so happy about, little girl? And she said, I love Jesus. And her dad was touched in his heart. And as they walked in, he knelt down next to her and he gave her $2. And he said, sweetie, that was so sweet. And in love for Jesus, why don't you take one of these dollars and go put it in the offering box And you can take the other dollar and go to the donut area. And this church had a little donut place where you could pay a dollar for a donut and get yourself a donut. And her face lit up. She was so excited. She got these $2 and she wanted to go around and tell her friends first. And so she went around and told them all all what was going on. And then she went over and looked down and saw she only had $1 in her hand. She lost the other dollar. And so as she looked at that dollar, she went over to where the donuts were. She looked at the donuts, and she looked over at the offering box, and she prayed, Lord, I'm sorry your dollar was lost. (laughs) And I only have my dollar for a donut. Well, that cute little story teaches us that money reveals where your heart really is what your heart really loves. That little girl, cute story, I know. She said she loved God, but when it was between the donut and God, the donut won. (laughs) And you know, that's often the case with us, isn't it? One of the primary indications of your love for God is what you do with what you love. And for many times, we love our money. God does not need your money. God God does not care about the worldly value of money. But God does care about your heart. And God does care about what you love. God created you to love him. God designed your body and your spirit to treasure him above all else. If you study the scripture, what you'll see, particularly if you study money, you will see a connection between your heart and that earthly money. First Timothy 6, 10 says, for the love of money Not money, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Hebrews 13.5, keep yourself, your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. 
The managing of your money is like a gauge that measures how much you truly love Christ. And that's not my opinion. That's the word of Christ. Think about some examples. Moses. Moses had all of the riches of Egypt. He had the luxuries. He had the education. He had the the gold. He had the pleasures. He had all that a king of Egypt could hope to have. Yet the scripture says that he gave all of that up. He rejected all of that wealth because he was looking, Hebrews eleven twenty six, for or to the reward. He gave up his money because he loved his Lord more. Think about Mark chapter 10, the story of the rich young ruler who held on to his money and chose to love that instead of repenting and loving Christ and the gospel. That rich ruler was proud of his wealth. He was proud of his accomplishments. When Christ looked at him, the Bible says Christ loved him. He had compassion on him because he saw this man was deceived by his love for money. He couldn't see his own sin. He couldn't see his need for Christ. And the Bible says that Jesus opened up the gospel to him, basically said that he could save him if he just turned from that and turned to Christ. And Mark 10, 22 gives the result, disheartened, saddened by the saying, he, that rich ruler, went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. He held on to that stuff and that stuff was holding on to him. And he went down the path towards hell because he loved money. John the Baptist, when he preached the gospel, really he was preaching, repent and turn to Christ. And the crowds, when they heard that, they said, well, what are we to do? What are we to do? And his answer was, I dealt with their money. Share, share your tunic, share what you have, your food. In other words, you're selfish with your money. The, the tax collector said, what should we do? He says, stop ripping people off. Be fair in your business dealings. The soldiers asked, what are we to do? He said, stop extorting people. Stop lying to them. Stop forcing them to give you things. Actually, stop complaining about how much you make. Be content with what you have. Isn't it interesting that the Bible over and over, when it wants to apply the gospel, many times it goes back to what we do with our money or really what our heart loves instead of loving Christ. And so we've been in 1 Corinthians 16 last week and now we're in it again this week. And what we saw in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 4 last week is that those graced by God must faithfully give through the local church to meet gospel needs in worship of Christ. When your heart experiences the grace that rescues and saves you from your sin, when you're saved from death to life, when you're saved from despair to hope, 
the response of that is that you respond to God's grace by giving. God has given up so much for us. Christ gave up the eternal riches of heaven and he came, gave up his life so that you could have the eternal riches of heaven. And so therefore we give and lay up treasure for those eternal riches. So this text of scripture we looked at last week, first we saw the, the purpose of giving. The purpose of giving in the offering at a local church is to give to meet gospel needs and to do so in worship of Christ. So the purpose of giving is to give to meet gospel needs and worship of Christ. And so we saw that in verse number one. Would you look with me at 1 Corinthians 16 and notice that in verse one as we review this verse here. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you, that's the church in Corinth, also are to do. So verse 1 speaks of this collection that these local churches were to take up on a weekly basis. And he says it's for the saints. And the specific group of saints he's speaking about here is the, are the saints in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem. Remember the church in Jerusalem the, the Christians there, that was the hub of Christianity in that part of the world. And, and when the gospel came, or when the gospel was preached by Peter at the day of Pentecost, 3,000 souls came to Christ. The church was born. One of the very first things people did when they received the grace of God is they gave. They, they sold their possessions and they gave it to the church to help those who were in need. Their response was to sacrificially give. And here's what's really cool about this. Because in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus said that, hey, you're to go out and from Jerusalem into Samaria, Judea, Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. And eventually in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, they do that. They are scattered because of persecution throughout the regions of Judah and Judea and Samaria and all those except the apostles, it says. And then and then also went to the areas of the Gentiles. So we see the gospel is spread. And now the church in Jerusalem is suffering. 20 years after that in Acts chapter 2, the, the church of Jerusalem is experiencing a famine. Now they're poor. And the church gave to support those suffering in Jerusalem. Those suffering in Jerusalem went out with the gospel. They gave the gospel to the Gentiles. And now the Gentile churches are sacrificially giving to help the mother church, if you want to say it that way. So it's just a neat example to see the gospel at work in the hearts of people as they sacrificially give to meet gospel needs. So Paul instructed this church in Corinth to give in 1 Corinthians 16 toward the needs of those saints. In this passage, and there's other passages that we went to last week and we could go to, but we're not going to this morning, they're the passages that instruct faithful churches to take up these collections, these offerings each week for the needs of the saints. And really, we saw last week, there's really three primary needs that these go towards. Number one is the 
need to support those who are spiritually shepherding the church. Number two, it's the need to to send out gospel workers to spread the gospel. And, And third, the need to serve those who are physically needy in the church. So that's the purpose. That's the purpose of giving is we give to meet gospel needs. And it's a ministry. The Bible describes giving as a ministry. So so let me ask you this. Do you serve in a ministry? You might have an official one where you're maybe a greeter or nursery or unofficially throughout the week you're visiting people and you're ministering in that way. Giving is to be a ministry that we are all to have. When you give, you are ministering to one another. You're ministering through your gifts for the needs of the saints. In fact, you can see that down in verse number two. Notice verse two. He says, each, that's singular, it's individuals in the church, each person of you, that's plural, is to put something aside. To put aside is a present tense imperative. It's an ongoing command for us to do. So this is not a suggestion. This is not if you feel like you're in the mood. Giving is to be a regular act of obedience to the Lord for each believer. And then notice also that, or I should say we noticed last week also that giving is from the motive of worship. It's for the purpose of meeting gospel needs in worship of Christ. And you can see that in verse number two in the context of meeting as a local church. Notice verse two. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So giving financially must be a a regular act of worship. If you want to study this more, particularly this idea that giving is a response to the grace of God, and it's a response of worship. Study the passage that Carl read this morning, first, or 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and the previous chapter of that, chapter 8. Those passages are just abundantly clear that giving is not to just be a duty that we do. It's to be something that comes from our heart. The purpose of giving is to worship Christ. Let me just throw up one of these verses, or two of these verses on the screen Verse 7, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart. It's a decision of the heart to worship, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a, a cheerful giver. It's the idea, it's a response of joy. It's a response of worship. It's saying, God, you've done so much for me. I, I am so happy I can give back to you. And then verse number 12, for the ministry of this service, so notice giving's a ministry, is not only supplying the needs of the saints, so there's the purpose, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. Thanksgivings to God is worship. And then it's really cool, at the very end of this chapter, as you heard Carl read it, he says, thanks be to God for this For his, that's God's, inexpressible gift. He doesn't end two chapters speaking about giving by saying, church, thank you for giving. That's not necessarily wrong to do that. But he ends 
those two chapters by saying, praise God for his gift. And that's really what giving is. It's worship to God. And so I would instruct our church when you give, if you're dropping something in the back or if you give online, however you give, I would instruct you and encourage you to pray a prayer of thanksgiving. In your heart, God, you have done so much for me. You have given me the gift of eternal life. And so I give this in praise to you. In fact, I would, I would encourage you if you give uh, through having it deposited in the, from your bank into um, the fund, or if you have it be online, you know, in other words, you're not doing it every week, it's done for you. I would encourage you to have as your regular prayer throughout your week, a prayer of praise, thanking God for that. Just don't do it mindlessly. Actually engage your mind in your prayers, thanking God for what he's given to you and that you can give back. And so the habit then next of giving is to be this. We're to give faithfully and freely as a weekly Sunday pattern. We're to give faithfully and freely as a weekly Sunday pattern. You can see this in verse number two. There's, there's so many words in verse two that really point to this. Notice in verse two, he says, on the first day of every week. So the word every means God expects this to be a habit, a, a, a pattern in your life. And I don't think this means that if you do if you give monthly or if you give bi-weekly that you're wrong. I believe the idea here is that the first thing you do with your income is that you give it a portion of it to the Lord. I think it's what he's talking about here. It's instructing us to, notice verse 2, to put something aside. Again, a present tense. This ongoing action of taking that which God has prospered you in and setting a portion of that aside to give to the Lord. And so notice verse number two also, for the church, you are, they are to store it up. That's the idea of a, of a treasury. Paul said at the very end of verse number two, so that there will be no collecting when I come. So it's not we just give once a year or a couple times a year. No, his instruction here is there, there should be this weekly, there should be this habit, this pattern of life to give of what God has prospered, of how God has prospered you. And so what does that phrase mean? Notice that phrase in verse 2, as he may prosper. Well, this is speaking of how God has provided for you. It's not saying those who are prosperous, or you could say we think of rich, those are the ones who give. He's saying, as God has prospered you, as God has provided for you, as God has given you something, you are to give something. And here's the thing. All of us have something. And so if you have something, give something. I think it's what he's saying. There's a simple way to think about it. And he's speaking here as ones who are to be stewards of what God has given to them. A steward manages the money of an owner for the owner's benefit. A steward manages the money for the owner for the owner's benefit. In the summertime, I have, for many years, 
often um, preached at camps. And one very fun observation that I make every time, especially for these kids who are 8, 9, 10, 11 year olds, is that their parents will give them money, you know, $50, $60, whatever it is, and they'll tell them to go to camp. And of course, the mom instructs them, you know, use it to uh, play games like paintball or, or do cra- buy crafts because, you know, you have, to, you have to buy things at camp still and, or get some healthy snacks. And, and then the kids get this money and they go into the store and there's sugar everywhere, right? Candy, pop. I remember one boy, his name was Micah Boffman, and his mom did not let him have sugar. She was one of those moms. This is back when maybe that wasn't as common. But anyways, and so no Coca-Cola, no, no candy, you know, and he went to camp. Oh boy, like he came out of there with loads of candy. Every time I saw him, he had a Mountain Dew in his hand. I mean, he was high as a kite the whole week. It was, it was so much fun to see that. Kids were, were bad stewards of their money. In fact, almost, some of these kids, almost throughout, the, throughout every week, there would be in the middle of the week, one of the kids would say, you know, I was supposed to get a gift for my brother or my sister, you know, bring it back a souvenir, but I don't have any money left. It's because they spent it on that. Well, why, why were they bad stewards of the money? Well, because they viewed their money as theirs to spend for their own pleasure, right? They were immature in that. But we can view money that way too, can't we? It's mine to spend for my pleasure. Maybe here's a little bit for the Lord. Bing! That's actually not how God wants us to view what we have. Everything we have is the Lord's. All of our income comes from him. And we are to steward that. And part of that stewardship is that we give a portion of that back to the Lord. Some people say, well, I have nothing to give. Well, you have something, like we said earlier. So you should consider of that something what God would want you to give. The Macedonian churches, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, were were poor. They were afflicted. In fact, he says they had extreme poverty, yet they they gave. In fact, 2 Corinthians 8, too, describes them as being under a severe test of affliction. They had extreme poverty. Now, do we know what extreme poverty is? Do we know what, what this severe affliction is as Americans? I mean, we, we've been afflicted. We know what it's like to go without on some level. But honestly, if you go to places like Haiti, we went on a missions trip there. I guess four or five years ago, we went to Honduras last year. And when you go to those places, you see extreme poverty. And what's, what's remarkable about going to those places and as you enter into the homes of believers and they, they actually want you to come into their home. And when we're talking about a home, we're talking about a shack, dirt floor, you know, it's, it's hardly anything. And when they enter in, these believers, they have a smile on their face. And you're asking yourself the question as a rich privileged, if you want to say that, American, you look at them and you go, why are they smiling? And you realize it's because they love the Lord. And then even more remarkable, they say, can we get you guys something? <laughs> oh, no, no. You're like, it's kind of humbling. You're like, no, I don't want that. But no, they want to do that. This is what I think what you see in these Macedonian churches. They, they were impoverished and they heard about 
the Jerusalem church and the suffering, those believers, and they said, we're going to give. And the scripture says that they didn't just give, they gave beyond their means. And yet, how many times as Americans, we say, well, I don't have very much, so I can't really give. Or, or someone might say, you know, once I have more, then I'll give more. No, you won't. If you love money when you're poor, you're going to love money when you have a lot more of it. And so we are to give generously. We're to give sacrificially. I knew a man in the ministry once that said that, well, I don't like to give in the offering. I don't give because I give him my time. I, I, I give him my talents. I'm, you know, a pastor. I'm a minister or whatever. What do you think about that? You got people that think that way. That you know, that I, I I give, I serve in this ministry, so I'm not going to give. Well, I believe that that minister and people who think that way, I, I believe they're living in disobedience, because we're all to give of our time, and our talents, and actually the scriptures instruct we're all to give also of what God has given to us. We're to give financially. And someone who thinks that way really is someone who doesn't want to give what they really love the most, and that is their money. It's really an excuse to say, I, I, I want to hold on to my money and just give them my time. And definitely both are important, but both are important to give as an offering to the Lord. And, and here's a verse to think about. If you've thought that way, here's a verse to think about. Luke 16, 11. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, that's talking about your income the resources God has given to you. Who will entrust you the riches, or who will entrust to you the true riches? If you're not faithful in the small uh, worldly possessions, why would God entrust to you the eternal riches? Matthew 19, 29, Jesus promised those who sacrifice now, those who give up now for, give up their, their possessions and their own life for my sake and for the gospel, he says that they will receive a hundred times now and in eternity. A hundred times. That's a 10,000% return. See, see, not giving is not only disobedience, it's actually foolishness. Like, who wouldn't want to have a 10,000% return? Okay, I, I don't have a mic on me, so I need, I need a kid to come up here and help me. I need a, a child in the church that's not one of my kids. Sorry, kids. Someone in the church that really wants to help me. And, and let me just, let me, wait a second. Like, this will help you probably, not to appeal to your greed or anything, but I got some money here for you. Okay, who wants to come up? Okay, we got Justice. Come on up here. Justice, oh. You know, we've been praying for this kid for a while, so this is great. Can you make it up here okay? Yeah, you're doing great. We're praying you get that boot off here pretty, you give the, the boot the boot. Okay, here's what I got for you, Justice. I got $10 for you. I'm, this is actually yours. I'm giving it to you, okay? So I got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. $10 for you. There you go. Okay, stay, keep that right there. That's for you, Justice, and you can take it. You can do whatever you want with it, but here's what I'm going to tell you. If you give me $5 back at the very end of the service, this $20 bill is yours. Okay, so you can, you can keep the $10, or if you give me $5 right now, at the very end of the service, I'll give you this $20. What do you want to do? Um, 
Okay, so give me, give me $5. Okay, give me $5. There we go. There we go. That's one, two. That's three, four, five. Okay, that's your $5. And I promise you at the very end of the service, I'll give you this 20 plus this five. So that's 25. There you go. Okay, go ahead. You can go take a seat. And this is waiting up here for you. Make sure you remind me because I don't have a good memory. That's a simple illustration to show us that actually it makes sense to invest in that way. But what's, what's the struggle that even justice might have at that moment? I kind of want all, all of it right now, right? Who wants to wait? And so what the scripture is telling us here is that, yes, we have to invest now and we have to wait. But if we wait and we see, if we invest in eternity, we'll see the dividends that God has for us. Church, God promises our giving is an eternal investment. Each week when you give, you are planting seeds of faithfulness. And 2 Corinthians 9, 6 says this, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And verse 10 says, and he who supplies, God supplies seed to the sower. He's giving you that seed. And bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So as you plant those seeds of faithful giving, God promises to grow those seeds into a bountiful harvest And he will provide, therefore, for you now, but also it will reap eternal dividends. And we should never give out of a heart of greed, right? You watch those TV preachers, and you go to some churches, and it's kind of this idea is you give now, and God's going to make you rich. Like, no, that is not why we give. We give out of faithfulness to the Lord. God is not some type of genie lamp, and you you go and drop money in the back, and you rub it, and you're going to get that, you know, lottery ticket's going to come on this week or something like that. That's not how it works. But on the other hand, as we give, God promises to bless, not just now, but for eternity. His promise is attached to that. One of the poor Macedonian churches was the church in Philippi, and Paul received a gift from them, and actually not just one gift, but multiple gifts, and Paul didn't ask for it, but he said, thank you for it, and then he said, and guess what? There's a promise attached to your sacrificial gift. He says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus, and that's the struggle we have. When we look at giving, we think, but I have some needs. Church, God promises to supply your needs. It's a matter of faith and trusting him. Now, here's a question. How much? What's the percentage, pastor? 10%, 20 percent, 30%? If you've heard preaching, teaching on giving, you've probably heard something about tithing. The word tithe means 10%. And so some people say you should give 10% of your income. Well, what does the Bible teach? Well, there's nowhere in the New Testament that prescribes giving a tithe 
to the church. There's nowhere in the New Testament that says you should give 10% of your income in the offering. And, and there's some people that still teach that, but there's really two problems with teaching that. And number one, that if you look at the Old Testament giving, or you could say the Old Testament tithing, it wasn't just 10% they were to give. It was actually more than 10%. In fact, here are the tithes and offerings for Israel they were to bring. First, there was the Levitical tithe. That was 10% of their crops and income and animals and so on to support the Levites in their ministry in the temple. The second tithe was the festival tithe. Each year, they were to bring 10% of their grain and wine and oil and livestock to these different gatherings where they were to worship Yahweh God. Then there, every third year, they were to bring a tithe of the welfare tax or welfare tithe. Deuteronomy 14 instructs them to give a tenth every three years. So you could actually add all those up and say that on average, each year, they were to give 23% of their income. And then on top of that, they were to give free will offerings, so in one given year, if they gave 20% plus the 10% for that year, plus free will offerings, I mean, they could be giving 35% of their income, maybe more, maybe 40%. And, and I'm not saying that's something you should do, although you might do that. But the idea is, is that that's what the Old Testament prescription was for Israel. And, and so the question is for us, what are we to do? Are we supposed to adopt that? Are we supposed to adopt 10% or 23% or... 30% or what are we supposed to do? Well, the Bible never instructs us to give a tithe in that way. So therefore, that's not an instruction for us to follow. So, so the first problem in teaching on that is that, that the Old Testament tithe wasn't just 10%. The second is that the scripture in the New Testament actually teaches us to freely give of our own decision from what God has given to us. However, I do think that we can learn from the tithing of the Old Testament saints. Though we don't follow the commands to tithe, I think we can follow some of the principles. Because first of all, when you see them tithing, with the, when the Lord talks about their tithe, he, he's saying you should do this under the Lord. You should do this for the Lord. In other words, even their tithing, it was to be done in worship. And so I think that's definitely something we could do. I think the second thing is to think about is that their tithes went to support the, the ministers, the Levites. Their tithes went to support the, the, the gatherings they had for worship. Their tithes went to support the needs of the Israelites. In other words, their tithes went to support the same thing that they go to support in the church. That's interesting. And in fact, you see this in 1 Corinthians 9 where he argues, pay your ministers because the priests were paid. And then the last thing is, the purpose of the tithe was to teach them to be good stewards. And you can see this on the screen, Leviticus 27.30, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. In other words, God gave all that to you, and the reason you're tithing that is to teach you it wasn't yours anyways. God doesn't need that stuff. He didn't need it. He was saying, I'm teaching you something through this. My point is this, and I think our point is this, is that we can learn from that, and that I think it is helpful for you 
to attach a percentage to your income. There's no prescribed percentage in the New Testament, okay? But I think it's helpful for you to say, Lord, I'm going to give you 10% or 15% or 20% of my income. Do it in worship of the Lord, recognizing that it comes from him. Randy Alcorn wrote this in the Treasure Principle. Anything we try to hang on to here will be lost. But anything we put into God's hands will be ours for eternity. If that doesn't take your breath away, you don't understand it. And he's talking about this stewardship principle. We steward what God has given to us and we give and worship to the Lord. And when you understand this this stewardship principle, that God owns my stuff and I'm investing it in eternity, then, then you will give, yeah, 10%. But you'll give more than that. You'll give above and beyond that you even think that you're able to give. And so let me talk to a, a couple groups. Kids, let me talk to you in here. If you understand this principle, when you come to a, a gathering like this, you're not going to just turn to your dad and say, Dad, can I put a dollar in the offering like that little girl? You'll go to your piggy bank. And you'll get that dollar that, you're, that you love in there. And you'll say, Noah, I love the Lord more, and you'll give to the Lord. For adults, if you understand the stewardship principle, I think this actually would translate into you budgeting what, you income, what your income is. We don't live in a society that likes to budget, do we? But if you're going to steward someone else's money, then you should budget. And part of that budget should be, what are you going to give to the Lord? And let me talk one last time. Let me talk to the last group, and that is retired folk. I'm not retired, so I'm not going to give my opinion. I'm going to give Randy Alcorn's opinion. He's 69 years old. I think he's retired. If he's not, if not, he's close to it. He has written a lot of books, so he has a lot of royalties. And this is what he says about your stage of life. He says... What about our children, you may ask? Are we supposed to leave to them all of our money? The answer is no. Nancy and I will leave to our wonderful daughters and their families enough to be of modest help, but not enough to change their lifestyles or undercut their need to pray with and depend on their husbands. That's very countercultural, but his point is this. The point is, Sometimes people think of the inheritance as, well, that's not mine, it's my kids. Actually, it's God's. And so what he's saying is, you need to think about it that way, it's God's, and and your goal is not to try to keep as much for yourself on this earth or keep as much for your kids on this earth, but to invest it in eternity. And so as as you think about your will and you think about all those things, that's what you should think about. And and why would someone do that? Well, he says this. He says, leaving a large inheritance to children is not only a missed opportunity to invest in God's kingdom, it's also rarely in the children's best interests. And he quotes a couple people. Andrew Carnegie said this. The almighty dollar inherited by a child is an almighty curse. That was his opinion. How about this one? Bill Gates, in January 2024, this month, he is worth $140 $140 billion. He's the fourth richest person in the world. Now, wouldn't you like to be his kid? Well, maybe not after you read this. He said, a fortune is best not passed on to one's children. It's not constructive for them. 
Now, probably his small amount would be a lot for us. So I think you probably still would want to be his kid if that was the case. But the point is, Randy Alcorn's point is you can't take it with you, but it's best to send it on ahead. And so the habit of our life should be that we are faithfully giving freely to the Lord as a weekly Sunday pattern. And then last of all, the the administration of giving, give to the local church under the stewardship of biblical elders. So so you think about this gift that they're going to take, who's going to be in charge of it? Who's going to be administrating the distribution of this gift or these gifts? Well, if you notice in verse number three, you can see he gives the answer. Verse three, and when I arrive, that's arrive at the local church, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So so Paul is saying here that the funds are going to be administrated by people that you appoint. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 9, what you're going to see is he's going to say, there's people that you're appointing who have certain qualifications. And their qualifications are not if they're CPAs or CFOs. Their qualifications are they are serving for the good of the gospel. In fact, let me just read it for you. 2 Corinthians 8.18. They're praised, they are praised by all for their service to the gospel. And, And one of those individuals was a man named Titus. And so Paul actually appointed Pastor Titus to oversee the funds. So it's interesting, Paul's collecting the funds, but he's actually stepping away from it, and he's not the one overseeing it directly. He appoints someone else to do it. And then actually he appoints another brother. You can see that in 2 Corinthians 8. So two men to oversee it, plus these group of men right here. So what you see is you see this accountability. You see men who are trustworthy. So I think this is helpful for us as we think about our church, our church must be collecting money in a way that's safe, that's, that has accountability, and we do that. We have men who are, most of them are deacons, but have been approved to, to they take the money, they, with two people, they count the money, and they, and they make sure that it's deposited safely. You have elders who are voted on by the church, who have character, who are godly men, who are to oversee the administration of those funds. Why would it be that you need spiritually minded men to to make sure the funds are secure, but also to administrate that? I mean, why wouldn't we say, okay, who's the best businessman in here? I thought about a church that I knew, or I should say a pastor that told me about a church in North Carolina where the the man who was handling the funds was this, this farmer. I mean, he was kind of like a dirty, you know, man. He wasn't like someone you'd think of. But there's other men in the church who could do that. And, and so sometimes people come and be like, well, why don't the businessmen do it? Why does this man? Because they're saying, because he's trustworthy and we trust him. And so the point is, is that these men are to, uh, to be trustworthy, but also another element of it is they are in charge with discernment. You see, we don't just collect funds and say, oh, who wants, to, who wants money on the mission field? Let's send it to this person. No, we want to send money to people who are doing church planting, who are orthodox, they believe God's word. We want to make sure they're doing a good job. There's accountability there. Or or how about the needs of the saints? We don't just pass out money to people. Oh, oh, you need something? Here you go. Let me give you an example. Let's say we have a widow in the church as a need. You say, oh, Pastor Ben, 
wouldn't the elders and the deacons help all the widows? Hold on. The answer is no. Oh, Pastor Ben doesn't like people like that. No. Second, Corinthians, Second Timothy actually instructs us to help true widows. And he says, yes, we should help widows. But if, if there's a widow who has family that can help her, the instruction is actually she should go to that family and they should help her. Another true, another qualification of a true widow is that she is godly. She has a life that has been demonstrated by good works. So, so the point is, is there are qualifications. And yes, we want to freely help those people, but it takes discernment to recognize, okay, who is the person that we should help and who shouldn't we help? Or, or think about it this way. How about a person who's out of a job? And so automatically our minds go, let's, let's help that person. But 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 instructs us don't help someone who is lazy. In fact, the instruction, 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says this, I give this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. And so this is in the context of a local church. And he's saying, we should help those who are struggling, those who don't have a job. But he says, we actually need discernment, because if there's someone who's lazy, you shouldn't help that person. And even more than that, that text actually says that person should be removed from the membership. In other words, if you're not providing for your own family, if you're not working, then you're worse than, he says, than an infidel. In other words, you're a person who be, should be considered as someone who's not a believer. And my whole point of that is this, is that you have to have men who have discernment to see how to distribute that. And so the administration of giving is we give to the local church under the stewardship of biblical elders. And let's remind us all and remind the elders and even those deacons who help to, to uh, buy and do what we got to do with those kind of funds and other ministry leaders. And that is that we will all give an account for how we stewarded that. So this isn't like, yay, we get to do whatever we want. It's we have to do this right for the Lord, and someday we're going to stand before Jesus, and he's going to say, did you steward my church well? So it's a very serious position, role, and one, frankly, that I know that most of us as elders don't like in that regard, because we don't want that pressure, but we do want to serve. Now, I want to say this as one last thing, and that is, I don't see what people give, so I don't know what you give, and I'm glad I don't ever want to know what you give. Uh, obviously some of the other elders do, but the point is that I want to serve the church in a way that encourages you to give, not because we need more or we want more. And the truth is, if you're visiting with us this morning and you're like, well, this guy's talking about a lot about money, please don't give. We don't, we don't want your money. We don't need your money. We're not doing it for the money. We are giving unto the Lord to worship him, to meet gospel needs. Those graced by God, must faithfully give through the local church to meet gospel needs in worship of Christ. And so let me ask this last question. Are you faithfully giving to meet gospel needs in worship of Christ? Would you bow with me in prayer?